Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's take another crack at that intro, eh? (laughs) (laughs) We just tried an intro before and I likened... Mouse and Dogs China to the year six disco or the year six farewell. We are retaking that. Now, we've discussed a little bit of China on the pod before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Particularly mainly Xi Jinping mm-hmm. and the US-China relationship, I believe. Yes. We haven't looked too much at Mao. Chairman Mao. Mao's last dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Did have you, you actually watch- seen it? I haven't seen it. No. I have. We watched it in, um, because we took Mandarin in year seven and eight, um, I don't really remember heaps of it. Uh, there was some dancing. <laughs> There's one left. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that, that's okay. the title of the year six farewell we needed. Yeah. <laughs> True. Who was the last dancer of your year six farewell? You know? <laughs> I think it is a moving film. I just don't think it was for me then because I was in year eight or something. <laughs> when it's a movie being played in school. Yeah. <laughs> You're not there to be moved, I don't think. Were you any good at Mandarin? Really? I can pick um, you to be quite like I don't like but I think I was just good by virtue of just studying hard for it in the same as I did for other things I don't think I had a natural knack for for Mandarin yeah um, I just ate a Mandarin <laughs> speaking of knack for Mandarin <laughs> that's the the classic year seven joke yeah <laughs> in definitions I don't know why it's called Mandarin yeah I don't know why it's called Cantonese for Taiwan either I uh, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. No. The, yeah. yeah also is couldn't. that not covered in your orientation? No, you would think it should be to really just like yeah. nip that joke in the bud yeah. early on. Just <laughs> like, all right, we get it. Um, how, how you say Chinese in Mandarin is Mandarin? It's a good question. I don't know. Because Mandarin's oh, not wrong. <laughs> Mandarin's not, it's not the only Chinese language, right? Yeah. So it's. Okay. Yeah. All I know is Ni Jiao Shema Mingzi. What's up, Beijing? What's up, Beijing? What's up, Beijing? Yeah, it's a great clip, that one. Yeah, so what I just said was, what's your name? To which you would respond with, Wa Jiao Cameron. Okay. I am Cameron. Yeah. Ni Jiao Shema Mingzi. Wa Jiao Cameron. Very good. 
Mm. Yeah. You're a Jaden Smith's karate kid. Yeah. Historically, that's like, I think could go down historically as like an American set in China, like the last attempt to restore relations yeah. between. Yeah. Maybe. I, I I saw the original Karate Kid when I was like seven, seven I'd say. Yeah. Based off what I remember, I've got to say the Jaden Smith one I think is better. Wow. Mm. I know, like, I think... I They're think, different. You know how you've heard of recency bias? I think there's also nostalgia yeah. bias too, mm. where I think sometimes we trash on something new. Okay. Because it's not the original. Yeah. The last, different. like, the ending scene of... Jaden Smith's Karate Kid is really moving. Like when you hear Justin Bieber's "Never Say Never," come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very sim- very similar to the original. Mm. How the how the ending played out. But did they have "Never Say Never" as the back? Yeah, track? that's a good question. <laughs> Should have been Eeny Meeny. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Kingston. Howdy is it? Yeah, that's it. And I an underrated. I played that once. So our friend Josh that we frequently have for the podcast, yeah. huge believer. And I remember I was in the car and I played Any Meeny and he was like, how do you know that? Like, what do you mean? Oh, mate. He was like, that's one of the only, like, nah, only nah. the inside. I'm like, no, nah, I'm pretty that sure it's pretty mainstream. That off chops. Yeah. And he, he was, he acted like I'd broken the Enigma <laughs> <laughs> Uh Yeah. Cobra Kai. <laughs> this channel. So we are going to discuss Mal. Now, I've made a fair few China videos and a lot of the commenters have a go at my pronunciation of Mao because I say Mao. Which apparently is wrong. It's Mal. Mal. And okay. It, correct me if I <laughs> get into Mal. But basically, Mal. we are going to pick up the story from 1949. There's a lot in the story before 1949, but we'll save that for another pod as we look at the Chinese Civil War. All you need to know is for the sake of the story, so Japan invades China. I mean, they actually go to Manchuria in 1931. 1937, mm-hmm. they advance all the way south. To Nanjing, which was the capital at the time. They eventually fight off the Japanese and America and drops the atomic bomb. Japan leaves China and basically there's a power struggle between Mao and the communists and Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. And the everyone's expecting Chiang Kai-shek to win the civil war. Chiang Kai-shek loses. He flees to Taiwan and runs Taiwan as his own pseudo-kingdom. America props him up because they want a non-communist power to destabilize the um again asian communist bloc and mao has to govern china from 1949 onwards i will say this about mao fantastic revolutionary one of the best guerrilla warfare artists of all time genius in how he organized guerrilla warfare those skills don't always correspond to then governing a country Mm. um so use another Ben Stokes analogy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't, his average is only like 34. Isn't it? It's pretty, his average is pretty low, yeah, but poor man's Shane Watson. Yeah. But when the pressure's on, yeah. he, he clutches it's, up it's big clutch, time. Yeah. Mm. Um, Mal is not good at the pace, the pace <laughs> stability. Fantastic revolution. Like again, one of the best revolutionary. And there's a reason why he tries to recapture the revolutionary fervor time and time again. <laughs> is because those are the glory days and that's his element. And he wins the civil war against all odds. And no one in the world, maybe apart from Stalin, is expecting China to emerge victorious, or sorry, communist China to emerge victorious, and they do. So we go to 1949, we fast forward to 1950 even, and China's like, okay, what do we actually do? We've been like campaigning forever to get in. Now we're in. How do we start the revolution, so to speak? 
It is also worth remembering that China has effectively been in civil war for 40 years. So you've got the Qing dynasty, which is the last dynasty of China. They get overthrown in 1911. You have a guy called Sun Yat-sen, who's kind of the new leader. That gets destabilized really quick. There's a whole bunch of Chinese warlords that are vying for power. The Japanese come in and effectively a whole generation of Chinese people don't know stability and they don't know peace. Mm. And their life has just been turbulent warlord. And so a lot of people thinking, hey, the Communist Party is just going to come and go like all these other ones. It won't be a dynasty of its own. And Mao basically wants to ensure that they do. What would be your first move if you were Mao after a civil war? You know, you'd get rid of all the the others on the on the other side. You'd dispel the dissenters or whatever you want to call it. A big yawn from you there, Jack. <laughs> 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 yeah. What would I do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what situation Mao's in. So <laughs> he's just won a civil war. Okay, okay, okay. Bro was not listening. I don't know, mate. Ben, don't know. Ben, ben, ben was Ben was right. Say, so, yeah, I, I was not going to go against that. <laughs> so basically, they anyone that kind of had any link to being ex KMT or having sympathies towards Chiang Kai Shek's Kuomintang. A lot of people were put up on charges and the charge was officially called collaborating with imperialism. Mm. Very vague, very open-ended as to what that could be. Mm. But 2.6 million people were arrested. That's a lot. That is a lot. Mm. They do have a lot of people. You might not know that about China. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but even back then. <laughs> uh, 1.3 million were imprisoned out of that 2.6 million. And then 712,000 were executed. Wow. Yeah. How many? 712,000. Wow. And so, again, we've got a... In terms of understanding China, it operates on a different plane to Europe. So the ancient period for Europe ends probably as early as maybe 700 AD. The medieval period ends, what, maybe 1500? Somewhere, give or take. Everyone's got different opinions when it ends. Somewhere between the 1300s and the 1500s, the medieval period ends. And then the early modern and then modernity begins. Mm-hmm. For China, they're still talking about the ancient period, like ancient China can last up till 1911. Yeah, well. And so, again, in the ancient world, China was the most powerful nation in the world. They rivaled the Roman Empire for power, the printing press, the compass, like yeah, all sorts of other inventions as well that you can kind of unpack. Gunpowder, I think. Gunpowder, absolutely. China. Yep. All those inventions came from ancient China. But they didn't really progress any further from that. And whereas Europe industrialized, China didn't. And China was still a medieval society in many respects, not all respects, but in many respects a medieval society when Europe went into modernity. And so it was actually quite normal for the government to be killing lots of people. Mm. Like that doesn't make it any more okay, but it is just important context that this wasn't anything new. For 40 years, this had been happening already. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, lot, so Mao comes to power, chucks counter-revolutionaries into the gulags, and in the gulags, a whole bunch of them are executed or just die from the conditions in the gulags. At the same time, Mao brings in key Kuomintang people, so, like, kind of generals and stuff that were sympathetic, he brought them across and offered them positions in his government. And so he's kind of, yeah, being nice to the big guys, mm. Um Oh, yeah, nice to the cool group. 
and the any peasants that had a you know Kuomintang sympathy were not spared. Annexed two parts of China. One called Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. You know who lives there? Who lives there now? Is is it the guy uh, from that online website? Jack Ma from Alibaba. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm, talking about, I'm talking about a group of people. Oh, a group of people. <laughs> the Uyghur Muslims. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did set you up for failure. Yeah, that was a tough question. <laughs> um, so the, the, you heard of the Uyghurs? Yeah. They live in Xinjiang. Okay. And so Xinjiang was basically a weird proxy zone. It was mostly run by Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. And it was also a Soviet autonomous zone, so to speak, as well. What happened was Mao just annexed it and incorporated it into the PRC. The League of Muslims didn't like that very much. And the East Turkestan independence group has been fighting against the Chinese government ever since. When you hear stuff about China and the Uyghurs and it's kind of cultural genocide from the last five years or so, there's a whole lot of context that's just been completely ignored in that, in that it's, it's an ongoing conflict that hasn't been resolved. Hmm. When you say Wigan was, it's some. Se- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm intrigued as to where this is going. It sometimes sounds like you say League of Muslims. <laughs> this is like a superhero group or something. <laughs> um, interesting. It was Mesut Özil who brought a whole lot of attention to the Wiggers. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, there's another group that was annexed. Tibet. Mm. Who and this one is an individual person who lives in Tibet? The monks who live in the Tibet. Tibetans. They do. Yeah. It's also a trick question. Yeah. I was hoping you'd say the Dalai Lama. Technically, the Dalai Lama is in India in refuge, but the Dalai Lama is the leader from Tibet. Oh, yeah. Tibet, there you it's, go. A, it's a Tibetan. Like so. So Xinjiang is Muslim. Yeah. Tibet is Buddhist. Yeah. With the Dalai Lama as its kind of figurehead. And so the China, well, Mao's China annexes Tibet. Tibet also doesn't like that very much. And Tibet has, you know, fought for its independence, independence ever since. And the West has been largely supportive of Tibetan independence. Not necessarily Western governments, but just kind of Western people. Anytime Chinese people were on tours, like the free Tibet signs were always out and that sort mm. of thing. And so, I mean, the, the Tibetan one is interesting there's a context behind that as well the tibetan society was far from peaceful before the annexation there's some pretty horrific stories i read about it a little while ago i haven't come over all the details but it was far from there's a bit of a myth that tibet was this peaceful society and then mouse china just rocked up and was like haha you're under the imperial thumb now yep. but of course it served china's interest to have tibet under its control hmm. there's also another important conflict going on in the early 50s we have discussed it on the pod before the cold war yeah cold, cold war yeah and within the cold war the space race that's <laughs> <laughs> late no, that, 50s uh, yeah early 60s something to do with the middle east no uh, korea korea mm. so there's the korean war that's going on now korean peninsula again attaches to china yeah so basically Mao at the beginning is like, oh, we might stay out of this one. But then as America looks more and more likely to win, they get really concerned. And they're like, Mm. actually, we don't want Korea to be an American satellite state with America, (laughs) Taiwan and Japan next to us. That's actually a huge national security issue. So Mao Zedong sends the People's Liberation Army in. 
and the PLA actually repels the Americans. They do a phenomenal job. Mao's son dies in the war. Mm. And when he's informed... It's personal. It is, well, Mao argues that it's not. Okay. So when Mao's told, apparently, according to our records, he basically just says, it's sad, but it's sad when any Chinese person dies. Mao's no different to... Mao Anying is because first name, surname in China. Yeah. So Mao Anying was the name of the son. Uh, Mao Anying was no different to any other Chinese soldier that died and shouldn't be given any special treatment. Wow. Jeez. Stone cold from... Yeah. yeah. From... Yeah. So, the Mao's intervention in the Korean War effectively saves, uh, effectively saves Korea. America toys the idea of nuking Korea. And so, Douglas MacArthur... Let's blow it up. Yeah, is the one that's advocating for it and Harry Truman's like, yeah, no, you're fired. That's, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and so, thankfully, we didn't go to nuclear war over Korea. But... It was a huge win for Mao Zedong, who stopped the American advance. It ended in a stalemate. We've got North and South Korea. And at least North provides a buffer between US-backed South Korea and the Chinese mainland. Hmm. So in the early years, it actually starts relatively positive. And at the same time, Mao strikes up a treaty of mutual assistance with the Soviets. The Soviets provide all these experts that help him with their factories and that sort of thing. And that helps China out a lot massively. He then launches something called the Hundred Flowers campaign. I did once see on social media two people in a relationship for the first time, still navigating kind of the dynamics of what to do in a relationship. Mm. I did see a guy once post a photo of him with the girl saying, I love you more than a hundred flowers. I'm like, man, that's like saying I love you more than a million Zimbabwean dollars. It's worthless currency to you. <laughs> like, what are a hundred flowers to a guy? Why would you say that? <laughs> was this a friend? That no, not a friend. It was just a meme? No, no, no. It was a per- person that I knew. Okay. I can tell you off that air. Is, that okay. is a strange that's metric of love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's Because how much does a hundred flowers cost, really? A couple, like, yeah. couple hundred bucks maybe <laughs> they're good so I love you more than a couple hundred dollars or was he referencing yeah, this or, historical event <laughs> did he love you more than this particular period of history you know? <laughs> well, if, he was, if he was referencing it it's really um yeah yeah tell us more let's decide <laughs> if it's worthy of, <laughs> if so, it's um, particularly lovable it was basically Mao Zedong got Ask FM um did you ever have do you want, well, ask it? Oh, like where you just someone would have a count and you could just ask some questions and honestly, is that the one? And they'd answer it publicly. It was basically like a huge, like people just got cyberbullied. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was that everything? I think it feels I, like, like is that like a TBH on Facebook? Similar, similar premise in the sense that you had an account and people would ask you questions and you would answer them publicly yeah. hmm. and just like and inevitably. And like you could like let them go, but a lot of it was kind of code of honor to answer every question. Yeah. And people would out you if you if they sent a question in. And yeah. I remember like my friend, I won't name him on air, would often misspell things intentionally because he was quite clever to give the allure that, so that he could like disguise and like oh, discover like, he was asking. Like, oh, there's no way he's asking this question. <laughs> Who do you like? Oh no. Yeah. Um, but inevitably it would just end in like vicious comments being made about people and people mm. having to defend themselves. Because it was all anonymous, right? Yeah, it's it was just all anonymous. a recipe for disaster. Did, did you, you 
Was that ever? I think it might have gone out of fashion. By I never had yeah. an account myself, I've, I've but I remember it. people. I remember people. I, yeah, it. I know. I remember people posting links on yeah Facebook and such. Yeah, yeah. So Mao basically got that. So his whole thing was like, okay, we've done the first few years of communist society. We need to open up China. The subtext behind this was that Joseph Stalin had died. Mm-hmm. And three years after Stalin died, the new guy, Nikita Khrushchev, gets up and gives his de-Stalinization speech where he criticizes Stalin for running a terrorist state and for basically not allowing any dissent. When you say de-Stalinization, it makes me think of the de-Stalination of <laughs> 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 I suppose I haven't heard that yet. Like, <laughs> I'd, I'd read it like in a textbook in school and be like, oh, I've... Cornell. I didn't realise this was so widespread it had reached Cornell. <laughs> Earth and environmental laws in history. So, yes, he does begin desalination. <laughs> and he gets up and he's like, look, Stalin Mount of Terrace said he didn't allow any dissent and we're going to move the Soviet Union into a more tolerant direction, so to speak. Hmm. And it's kind of like the communist equivalent of like when a company screws up or something like that. Or like gets cancelled or whatever, and they post that like we'll educate ourselves and like seek to like yeah seek to move that's seek to reflect on our yeah on and our wrongdoings. He's like Stalin built a cult of personality around himself, all that sort of stuff. And the thing was, all of his criticisms about Stalin could be leveled at Mao. Yeah, and Mao was like, oh, it's a bit pointed. Mm. I just want to send that through to me before you give that speech because <laughs> the Soviets and China had been tight tight as yeah, and yeah. the Soviets had helped Chinese society massively. So Mao needs to reposition himself away from that kind of dictator terror image. And so instead, what Mao does is he launches the 100 Flowers campaign where he's like, let 100 flowers bloom and let 100 schools of thought contend. And basically it was like free free speech, kind of like, again, Jordan Peterson would be loving like this era of Chinese society. Yeah, I could see why you'd use that as a metric of love if you say I love someone more than... The Hundred Flowers campaign. <laughs> Lots to love about it. Freedom I love of you speech. more than Jordan Peterson loves free speech. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it was basically the green light to criticize the government. Hmm. Again, kind of like the Office episode where Michael Scott asks uh, roast. Yeah, asked to roast. Yeah, yeah. A bit of a like for a TBH kind of yeah. thing. Really, that I'm <laughs> Not so easy when the roasting comes in. Yeah, and so. Look, some of the, I won't get through all of them. It's probably some of the high-profile ones was at the 8th Chinese National Party Congress. The leader of the army, a guy called Peng Dehuai, he basically said China is governed by a collective rather than an individual. So the party runs China, not Mao. And Lu Xiaoqi basically omitted any reference to Mao Zedong thought from kind of the um, like writings of the Congress. Hmm. And I was like, oh, Ouch. <laughs> bit pointed yeah and so what Mao does is Mao then says this is an abuse of power you have mi- this has gone against the spirit of the hundred flowers campaign <laughs> and right-wing terrorists have used it to more or less create a revolution and counter-revolutionaries that's the kind of word that's that's mm. that's their version of like a terrorist is the counter-revolutionary which effectively means the same thing yeah. so a counter counter-revolutionaries are trying to hijacked the revolution, create their own revolution, and you've just completely abused the Hundred Flowers campaign. Yeah. N- not good. Mm. He then sends in a guy called Deng Xiaoping. He ends up being really important in the 80s. 
Dong Xiaoping gets sent in and he kind of leads the arrest. And a really interesting stat is that in 1958, that's the year after the 100 Flowers campaign, 43% of criminal cases involve terrorism. Wow. That's like, what, in Australia, that what it would be like 0.6% or something? I don't know. I'm just giving yeah. a random stat. Like, yeah. So 43% of like, you're dealing with everything from like theft to robbery. Yeah. And again, that what the Chinese government did was they cracked down really heavily on infanticide. So infanticide was really common, again, ancient society, not a modern society going into the 20th century. Hmm. And so as they're cracking, they're, as they're doing- So the, what, how, how is infanticide being used- like, what does that look like? Not like, are they, are people killing their own child that they can't support? Or yeah, is it, exactly. Is or just leaving out in the doorstep to die. Yeah. And so the Chinese government is prosecuting that heavily. So they've got all these other criminal cases that they're doing a lot of prosecution for, yet still 43% of it's made up from counter-revolutionary activity. Wow. So Deng Xiaoping basically leads this war against counter-revolutionaries where everything that they have said against Mao Zedong has been used against them. Hmm. But Mao Zedong said that 100 flowers, yeah. like... And so the kind of cynical uh, theory is that this was never intended to be free speech from Mao, and that it was just a trap to weed out all the all the all the rotten eggs from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, okay, interesting. So he's played them with us, Gaffer. They should have missed. They should have done the miss. They should have put some typos in it. Yeah. <laughs> so that hasn't gone well. He then needs a PR win and he's badly, or a PRC win, so to speak. He badly <laughs> needs. <laughs> he's good. He's good. Badly needs. ENC. <laughs> <laughs> For context on the Patreon, we were disputing. <laughs> at, in, our, in our high schools or primary schools, there's a PNC. Is it PNC or is it PNC? And if so, what does it stand for? I know parents is one of the words. It's definitely PNC. <laughs> yeah. Is it parents I- and committee? Because what. Or if parents and care, like what? Yeah, the, parents and carers is my guess. Parents but and it feels like committee should be in there just because. Yeah. Like, oh, parents and carers, yeah, yeah, because that's that, inclusive. Yeah, um, community. But you feel like you, you need something at the end of it though. Otherwise, like you can't have yeah. all parents and carers have a say. No, exactly. I thought it was parents and community, mm. and the community got to have a say. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, now needed. If so, how do I get on it? <laughs> Mao needed a public relations win and he launched something called the Great Leap Forward. Essentially, in the... Th- Sorry, can I? Yeah, yeah. I just looked it news. up. A Parents and Citizens Association. Parents oh. and Citizens? P&C. Like, wow. that's, that, I feel like that's been a trivia question at like a school trivia night or something. <laughs> <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Okay, that's what it stands for. Mm. Unless these guys are doing it differently at... Um, Citizens. Okay. Campbell High School or something. Fair enough. Um, no, yeah, I'm saying consistency, parents and citizens. There you go. We've right, all learned something. Play on. Yeah. Community. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. So now launches the Great Leap Forward. Hmm. Effectively, this was an aim to industrialize and have a greater industrial capacity and a stronger economy than Britain within 15 years. That's a lot of catching up to do. Britain were the leaders of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Stalin massively industrialized the Soviets in the 30s. One of the reasons they were so effective against Hitler was because they had gone throughout the 30s focusing on building up their factories. So Mao Zedong, the issue for China is 5% of Chinese people work in factories. That's like many. Yeah, exactly. They're mostly farmers. It's an agrarian society at this point. The whole, you know, sky rise Shanghai, that does not come until the 90s pretty much. 
So it's an agrarian society. It's medieval in so many respects. And Mao Zedong is basically going to launch it into modernity quicker than Stalin. That's his aim. <laughs> Eventually, as the Great Leap went forward, it went down from, we'll wait them in 15 years to seven years to five years to two years. And it was a little bit of may. It was just mayhem as people were out doing each other within the party, trying to create a more ambitious target. And yeah, like, no, no, we can do it even better. We can do it even better. We can do it even better until it just reached a point that was blatantly ridiculous. Now, to do this, what Mao Zedong did, evacuate people from the farms. So send them out from, out from the farms and into the factories and massively increase your industrial workforce. And to compensate for those lost farmers, we'll have more productive farms. And so instead of having private property or a feudal system where there was kind of a, a landlord that had peasants underneath him, scrap that. There is no hierarchy anymore. There's communes. 5,000 households live in the one commune. Uh, the biggest one had about 130,000 people living in it. And basically, it's kind of like permanent boarding school in that you get up, you work, you go to the canteen for lunch. Okay. Everyone's in the canteen. All the families are in the canteen together. Mm. And the cadre is kind of responsible for organizing the commune. Um, so that's kind of like the Dumbledore figure, so to speak, is, is what we call mm. the cadre. Mm. You go back to the fields, you work more, you go back to the canteen, your canteen serves you dinner and repeat. And that's, yep. you. your quarters are provided for, you don't own your house, you just you live in quarters that are provided by the government. And that's your responsibility. Your cadre might give you a day off here and there. So that's how the commune system works. Paradise, because it's completely equal, except in practice, it didn't work at all. Hmm. Now, a couple of things that went wrong. Number one, Mao advocated for something called close cropping, which is where you put all your crops together really closely. He also advocated for something called deep plowing, which was a theory. Now, again, Mao's not a farmer. He's a guerrilla warfare specialist. And Chinese science was stuck in the medieval era for agriculture. And so basically it was kind of wives' tales. Like that was the science. Um, The wives' tale was if you plant your crop deeper, it'll grow better. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you've planted a yam in year three or whatever. Mm. The deeper, you just you just kill your plant if you go too deep. Yeah. And it can't grow. If your crop's close together, um, it quite simply, one grows over the top okay. of the other, blocks the sunlight. Like it, it, they, and they often strangle each other too. So it, it doesn't work. And those farming methods didn't produce an effective harvest yield. The other thing that Mao advocated for were backyard furnaces because to industrialize, they needed metal. And so we chuck all these furnaces in the backyard. I think there are about 750,000 across China. And any loose metal that you have, like if you have a pan that you don't want anymore, chuck it in the furnace, melt it down, we'll send it off to be used in the factories. That didn't work because... It's like the compost bin of, um, yeah. <laughs> of, of China. <laughs> Man, the compost bin scare me. <laughs> yeah, uh, at my in-law's place, we use their compost bin and... The, it's a very healthy compost bin because there's a lot of cockroaches in there. Hmm. But every time I open it up, it's like opening the chamber of secrets. Like, yeah. I can't even look at it. I'm like, ah. It's festy. It is festicated. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the whole furnacing doesn't, doesn't work because the quality of metal that's being produced is really poor. There's also contradictory policies because um, Mao launches a war against sparrows and... <laughs> 
He's in the birds. He's in the birds because the sparrows were deemed to kind of ruin the crops. Right. But um, so he's like basically create slingshots to kill and mo- like they were like mobilized sparrow forces to take down the sparrows and um, was another one as well it was bang your pots together to scare off the sparrows mm. which is contradictory because aren't you supposed to melt down pots for the furnace true and so it's not very coherent um and also sparrows are predators of um like lice that kill crops as well so with the sparrows mm. gone uh they'll just other animals that came in and other creatures that came in and ruined the crops. So the Great Leap, it's kind of turning into a bit of a disaster. It's also made worse by the fact that the cadres keep lying to Mao because how do you get promoted up the party? Well, it's by showing that you have good performance. You can manage your commune well. So you're going to obviously inflate your stats a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, Full disclosure here. Have you ever lied about, I know you didn't much for cricket player Ben, Hey, why have you ever lied about your cricket stats? In you, have you ever exaggerated a? Yeah, I think that's pretty common to like round up. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Know, I can't remember a specific example. But, <laughs> um, I I am guilty. I, I have lied about my cricket stats before. Yeah. And it's like batting average of thirteen, ah, uh, fifteen. <laughs> when you're trying out for like the school soccer team, or whatever. <laughs> Oh yeah, I play C's, but I, I'm normally an A-grade player. I'm just playing down to play with my friends and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. So basically the cadres kept lying to Mao about the amount of grain output that they were having. So what Mao would do is Mao would send an inspector to count because he's obviously just not going to take their word for it. Um, but what they would do is the cadres had a deal where they would swap pigs and that sort of thing with each other. So when the inspector's coming, we'll give you all of our pigs. And then when the inspector comes to us, you give us all of your pigs. And that kind of inflates the numbers and gives Mm. a perception of producing much more than what they actually are. So Mao boasted that they were producing 450 million tons of grain. They're actually producing about 200 million. The reason why that's an issue is Mao actually exported a whole lot of that grain to the Soviet Union that needed to stay in China because he was misled Mm. about the figures that that they were producing. Another issue was that 1958 was a bumper harvest. Bumper harvest is a huge harvest that's abnormally big that won't be the same in future years. And in that bumper harvest, Mao Zedong encouraged the communes to serve five meals a day. Wow. And he was like, yeah, eat up. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner. All full full meals provided by the government. How good is the Great Leap Forward? Obesity problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that food needed to be stored. And particularly it'd be kept for winter when the harvest was over. 58, bumper harvest. 59, terrible harvest. Now there's no food. Oh, dear. Now, if you're a farmer and literally, like there's people, the story, people are eating tree bark, people are turning to cannibalism, that sort of stuff to survive because there's no food being produced. How's that going to impact your performance in the farms? Poorly. You don't have the energy, the strength to perform well and what's mm. your survival instinct going to be eat well yeah eat but no way would you waste energy working yeah like you, every ounce is really important so you had Chinese uh, farmers going into the fields where they can't be seen and just lying down mm. having mm. a little nap um, because if they worked that day they probably died and that impacts that makes the yield even worse because 
your workers aren't working. So not going well. Factory workers are then sent back to the farms as like an emergency salvage operation. On top of that, the factory conditions, there's no WHS. So, and you've got the factory workers are working insane 18, 19, 20 hour days. No WHS, no railings or anything like that. And dealing with huge furnaces, workplace accidents happen a lot. People fall, people fall into furnaces and stuff like that. It's really horrendous. Um, on top of that, there's a locust plague. And on top of that, the Yellow River, which I don't know if you remember from your year seven Chinese history, one of the main rivers, no, the, the Yangtze and the Yellow River, your, your two big ones in China, hmm. the Yellow River bursts and that actually wiped out um, a whole bunch of crops as well. Wow. 30 million people died. Crikey. Wow. That's five times the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah, geez. And so it's a disaster. The the estimates actually go up as high as 60 and I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the phrase as low as 10, but like from 10 to 60 is the estimate. The generally accepted historian's consensus is 30 million. And it's so- from like poor conditions. And management. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like that's just from starvation and then other things that yeah. result from that. Yeah. Right. So it's not a, like the, 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 the mistake that people make is people, when they talk about Mao's death figures, like, oh, he trumps Hitler by a huge amount. It's like, well, yeah, he had a much bigger population. Mao's aim wasn't to eliminate the people. He was, he didn't, he was indifferent when it happened because he was working towards what his communist you know, utopia was, but Hitler, Hitler's was an orchestrated mm. murder. Mm. Mao wasn't Mao was incompetent negligent you know a thousand other things it wasn't a calculated murder from the beginning and there is a little bit of difference there and I think when we try and like outweigh outnumber people by their death toll it becomes a little misleading and becomes a little unhelpful but still 30 million like 30 million is Mm. just insane and it is not good for Mao the Great Leap Forward hasn't worked what happens to Mao is we when we went through the Chinese government structure, the president is different to the general secretary of the party. The general secretary of the party has the power. The president is the figurehead position. Mao steps down as the president. Effectively, he goes into exile. Mm-hmm. In his absence, there's a couple of key guys we need to know. There's three of them. Lu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, Zhou Enlai. They're the three they undo the Great Leap Forward. So they bring back private markets. They bring back small plots of private land. You cultivate your land, you go to the market, you sell it and try and make as big a profit as you can because that's what's going to kickstart our economy again. And that's what's going to get grain production back up. Mm. If you're Mao, you're a little bit hurt by that. Mm. Your whole, your Great Leap Forward, the big vision that you had for China has now Mm. been undone by your inferiors. Mm So, Mao's in the wilderness for about four years. He comes back in 1966. Okay, the return. Have you heard of the Cultural Revolution? Yeah, indeed, I have. What is it? I feel like it's something that Sky News speaks a lot. Like, every, Mm. like, everything... Any like perceived attack on free speech is the beginning of Mouse Culture Revolution, according to, to Sky News. Oh. So um, it does get referenced a lot. Mao's Little Red Book. Does that ring any bells? Vaguely. 
Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, they're probably the the phrase "red guard." No. Okay. Basically, I'm thinking like the the guys in Star Wars. Yeah. Imperial <laughs> <laughs> guard. <laughs> oh, I think they. I'd, I could be wrong on this. I think they might be loosely based. I think we talked we talked about the Red Guard. Star Wars was seventies like and eighties. Um, yeah. So they could be. Although were the Red Guards maybe they were in the prequels actually now that I think about it. No, they were, they were the the Emperor's Red Guards. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. didn't America set up the Blue Guard? There's the blue there's in there's the blue team. The blue team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, no, no, Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so effectively, what happened? Is Mao kind of came back out of into the public eye. So effectively, what Mao he's basically spent four years touring, chilling out, going swimming. He loved to swim, <laughs> and sixty six he comes back and he's like, "We need another revolution. Counter revolutionaries have stolen the revolution. We need a second revolution, the Cultural Revolution. So we need to kind of revolutionize culture and ideas. Hmm. So." The government, the CC, the Communist Party remains in power. That's not what we need to change. We need to change the culture of the nation that's trying to hijack the Maoist movement. Yeah. Now, a lot of the people who were in their 40, like 40 and 50 year olds, they're a little bit jaded with Mao. Your 18, 19 year olds love him. And because again, their formative years of growing up, they grew up in the 50s. They grew up with all the Maoist propaganda. So... Mm. Again, like literally, I walk past a smoker because of Healthy Harold. I instinctively you pinched like, your nose. And like, <laughs> <laughs> purely because Healthy Harold ragged on smokers yeah. for so many yeah. years. Hmm. Um, whatever you're taught as a child is the, they're the deepest held beliefs that require the most undoing. And so, all it, by, by 1966, your people that had grown up in the 50s were your most influenced by Maoist propaganda. So they were the ones that are up for this and they were now the university students. Essentially, a, a woman named, I don't know how, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her name. I think it's Ni Wanshi. I'm going to say that's how I think it's pronounced. She puts up a poster on kind of the Peking University bulletin board kind of thing, denouncing the, um, the, the leader of the university. And it, this kind of snowballs into at Peking University a mass student uprising and a mass student demonstration against the university hierarchy, mm-hmm. and it gets violent. Okay, so we got this some pretty big rioters. Who would the government back, the students or the university? This oh, the current government would back the university, right? But Mao would probably back the students, wouldn't he? And this is where the issue is. So Lu Xiaoqi, Mao's number two, again, the guy that had effectively been governing China in Mao's absence, he comes out and he was like, this is ridiculous. We need we need to bring in forces. We need to stop this uprising. Like, mm-hmm. we stand with the university. Big mistake. Mm. So the next day, Mao Zedong comes out and Mao Zedong says, yeah, and we, back, we fully back the students. This is what we need. This is the revolution. This is the uprising against the capitalists that are trying to hijack the revolution. We stand with the, we stand with the students. Mm. Unfortunately for Lu Xiaoqi, he's effectively just put himself in the firing line. These students become known as the Red Guard. 
And one of Mao's other guys, so Mao reaches out to a guy high up in the army. His name is Lin Biao. He replaced the guy that we mentioned before, Peng Dehuai. A lot of names to remember. All you need to know about Lin Biao, head of the army. Okay. He introduces something called Mao's Red Book. Yeah. Effectively, he's trying to use the Bible. Like he looks at what the impact that the Bible has in not just Western nations, but in African nations. He looks at the, mm. the impact that the Bible has and he wants to make convert the bible and make it into uh, okay. kind of a mouse sort of thing yeah. and so mouse memoirs yes <laughs> it, was, it was just it was just mouse musings yeah well, it's just kind of like the book of proverbs but from mouse point of view okay. yeah i say of mouse proverbs and it was their duty to memorize it and it was this kind of mobilized army with the red book out and they'd memorized mouse sayings they would then pretty much attack class enemies was the quote. They weren't, they were half organized, half weren't. Sometimes they actually had actual skirmishes against the Chinese army. So they weren't an, an arm of the Chinese army, but they were effectively thugs that would beat up class enemies. So people like bankers, they were in the firing line. Yep. Um, religious people, which in China is actually primarily Buddhist. So Buddhism was put in the firing line a fair amount as well and university professors for having embraced Western imperialism was kind of the rationale. Um, again, people, a lot of people were imprisoned. They used kind of torture methods. Like every day they would kind of... There's more anecdotes. I've pulled this out from Jonathan Fenby's book, great book, Rise of Modern China. Um, one of the torture methods that he speaks about is that you would be taken out. They would announce your execution They'd be like, nah, jokes. <laughs> Next day. Yeah, you're up for execution. Nah. <laughs> you're up for execution. Yeah, we'll do it this time. Nah. And like, just uh, like, they kept yeah. messing people's minds. They actually just went ahead and did it. And so every day you would never know if you're actually going to be executed or not. Um, they would play noises so that people wouldn't be able to sleep and kind of tried to sleep deprive patients. It was, it was really crazy. Um, and again, a lot of this isn't coming from Mao. It's coming from these kind of red guards that have hijacked China. Mm. But because they're on Mao's side in fighting against the wing of the Chinese government that Mao's got beef with, mainly Lu Xiaoqi, Mao's okay with them. And Mao gives them the green light mm. and effectively just lets whiny thugs that haven't educated themselves in any sense of the word, but just have a lot of testosterone and anger. He yields a lot of power over to them. So when people say today, we need to listen to the students of the future. No, we don't. <laughs> like I say, this is a 25 year old. Like I've got a lot of learning to do before I even consider like trying to, I know, having, mm. I, I'm not a fan of 20 year olds in politics. Like <laughs> I would be a, a horrendous person to have in parliament. Um, and so, yeah, like these university students effectively hijacked the cultural revolution. <clears throat> Lu Xiaoqi eventually gets demoted and then he gets imprisoned. He gets put on a house arrest. Lu Xiaoqi has diabetes and Mao Zedong denies him his diabetes medication and Lu Xiaoqi dies under house arrest. We then need a new number two because Lu Xiaoqi's gone. That guy Lin Biao who made the red book, he is the new number two. Okay. He starts putting the army in positions of authority and basically he moves China more towards the direction of a military dictatorship. Mao Zedong gets paranoid now that he's put the wrong person in charge and that Lin Biao could overthrow him. Mao has him executed. Now, this is an interesting story. Lin Biao, effectively, so his son goes to him and is like, yep, dad, they're after you. They're going to kill you. You need to make a move against Mao Zedong now. 
you need to be the leader. And it's kind of like a Mexican standoff who will kill the other one first. Limbiard gets on a plane to um, fly, I think it's to Russia. And, he, and in flying to Russia, he flies over Mongolia and his plane gets shot down in Mongolia, over Mong- in Mongolia. Wow. And he dies. Official story is that it was just a plane crash. But really, most historians are pretty confident that Mao had him killed. A bit sus. Yeah. Mm. So now he's gone. So now they need a new number two. And the Cultural Revolution is a disaster. China's in absolute chaos. Two million people dead already. From And again, that's not dead from starvation. That's dead from being beaten in the street, being thrown into the gulag, whatever. Um, they need to kind of fix this. Mao brings back and kind of temporary number two. I mentioned him before. His name is Joe Enlai. He was one of the guys that undid the Great Leap Forward. He's yeah. so desperate that he brings back Joe Enlai. He had exiled Deng Xiaoping. He brings back Deng Xiaoping. Hmm. So he brings back those two guys and they effectively try and salvage as much of China as possible. Mao's wife, a woman named Zhang Qing, she is trying to get rid of those guys and it's just an absolutely chaotic power struggle where there's so much infighting. Weirdly, during all of this, America then rocks up to start talks with China. It's just so... Like, mm. uh, now I would have every license to be like, hey, guys, I'm so snowed under. Yeah. I'll get back to you. It's like you go over to your mate's place while their parents are fighting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and America's very much the approach of the, yep, nothing to see here. Um, you help us against the Soviet Union, so we'll kind of, we'll kind of back you. And so... Weirdly enough, they get America's backing and China is in chaos. Joe and Lai, Mao's number two, is seen as a threat. He has bladder cancer. I think I told you on the pod before, there was a tradition in the Politburo where you, the leader of the Politburo had to sign off on anyone getting medical treatment. Joe and Lai had bladder cancer. Mao Zedong refused his bladder cancer treatment and Joe and Lai died. So mm. Mao's just letting all of these number twos die in and around him. And... Deng Xiaoping is effectively, he's in a lot of trouble because um, he's been exiled, brought back from exile and exiled again. So he's in this constant to and fro, to and fro, I should say. Eventually, he manages to outlive Mao Zedong and Mao Zedong dies in 1976. At the end of his life, Mao Zedong really didn't care that much about policy. Mm. Like he had no interest in the detail whatsoever. It was purely on the vision of this revolution and making sure that his life's work of achieving this communist revolution wasn't undone. Safe to say Mao would look at Xi Jinping's China with horror. Okay. And he he would understand China as completely selling out and becoming corporate. Yeah. And so it's weird. He, he was this... The saying is Mao made the China one, Mao made China one, Deng made China rich, Xi is going to make China strong. And for that kind of development to happen in China, for China to kind of awaken, it had to be unified under a government that could control it because it was in chaos during the warlord era. That was Mao. And in all that chaos, Mao made the government what it was so that it could go on and become what it is today. Mm. Yet during his time, every initiative he tried was a disaster. But he was still the glue that kind of kept... He's such a weird figure in history. He's still the glue that kept it all together. And weirdly... One of the best, particularly when it comes to guerrilla warfare, one of the best military tacticians of all time, one of the worst leaders of all time. Hmm. Okay. So, Mao trying to reach his vision 
it uh, it took like a lot of blows, a lot of hits. In his mind, did he think they were necessary? To- Absolutely. And then when he was exiled, he had to... That vision was undercut. Um, mm-hmm. If that wasn't the case, like, I don't know, do you think there's a scenario where they actually ever reach... I don't know that that sort of utopia. Oh, no, at like say theoretic. No, as at like um, in terms of the, the utopia that Mao wanted for. So his spectrum wasn't rich versus poor. That was completely irrelevant to him. China could live in absolute poverty; wouldn't care less. What he needed, what he was after, was in his mind, at least how he kind of paraded himself, was an egalitarian society. And in the Great Leap Forward, that's what it was. You, everyone was equal because everyone was dying. Um, the only persons that had power were the cadres, and there was still a power. Like you, like it's part of life. Like there needs to be a hierarchy. Yeah. Like society is chaos if we're completely on equal footing in terms of mm. uh, our standing. And so, yeah, I don't think it ever could have reached. Well, like in terms of what his utopia was, it's hard to understand because he constantly changed his opinion on stuff as well mm. when it was politically convenient, but his dream of a utopian agrarian industrial powerhouse would never have been, they never would have become an industrial powerhouse in his lifetime. Purely because there was like, there weren't enough private incentives. Like if you're like, yeah, China only became industrially powerful during the eighties. And that was when they were given all sorts of incentives to produce stuff. Also the West would have contained him very comfortably as well. Um, China needed the support of the West not to antagonize the West. And so I don't ever see a scenario where China becomes equal, has enough food to survive, and is an industrial powerhouse at the same time. Mm-hmm. He also, his army was, uh, the army was really weak under Mao because he was so focused on territorial skirmishes with Xinjiang, with Tibet, and the army didn't get much attention. Though he was a fantastic leader in the civil war, as time went on, he became too focused on keeping his power that the army was a political tool rather than an actual army. Okay. So, a complex figure. Mm. Mostly, like, if you were to give him a, a report comment, mm. I would give him a B for effort, <laughs> a D for <laughs> competency. <laughs> But, uh, I look forward to watching Mel's last answer. Mm. Yeah, with with, with fresh eyes. Yes. I look forward to watching Karate Kid. True. Twenty ten edition. Yeah. Mm. Our um, our the Mandarin teacher that we had, um, he actually grew up in, in during the Cultural Revolution in China. Really. Um, yeah, and I feel like, like, the year year seven and eight students you know like it was just you know an English second language teacher is always going to be a tough gig trying to control those kind of students but I think like then the guys that did took the course further into high school with him and really got to know him were just like he was just like the loveliest guy and he would have had such cool stories to tell um but yeah we obviously just don't think about that at the time when we're (laughs) sitting there watching Mao's Last Dancer while people are playing Clash of Clans on the side (laughs) um but yeah, it would have been such a wild time to live through. Yeah. And it's completely not known about like in 
yeah, in Western society, mm. we know bits and pieces to try and like when it's politically convenient to say our political enemies are doing a cultural revolution, but that's about all we know. Um, it's not that common, and particularly compared to like something like the Holocaust, gets very little attention. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, it is a crazy chapter in Chinese history. Wow. And yeah, a very hard one to know how to finish on. Yeah. But thanks for sharing. Mm. Deng Xiaoping changed China massively. Okay. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> Maybe Mao would have let PY come into the country. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At what point did hyphenated last names enter the vision of China? <laughs> <laughs> we'll finish on that. <laughs> 